0: Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on August 12, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Oliver Hall, founder, executive director, and general counsel for the Center for Competitive Democracy. The Center for Competitive Democracy was founded in 2005 to strengthen American democracy By increasing electoral competition. The Center works to identify and eliminate barriers to political participation and to secure free, open, and competitive elections by fostering active civic engagement in the political process. It is a 501c3 nonprofit that offers a range of legal services, including litigation, consulting, and advocacy all with the intent of expanding access to and participation in the American Democratic experience. Oliver Hall founded the Center for Competitive Democracy in 2005 after graduating from the Boston University School of Law. He is a member of the Bar in Massachusetts and the District of Columbia and has been admitted to practice before several federal courts, the 3rd, the 8th, Ninth, 11th, and D.C. Circuit Federal Courts of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of the United States of America. He is the author of Death by a Thousand Signatures, The Rise of Restrictive Ballot Access Laws and the Decline of Electoral Competition in the United States, published by the Seattle University Law Review, and he has also written for Counterpunch and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mr. Oliver Hall, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening.
1: Thanks very much, Dan. Nice to speak with you.
0: Good. Well, the, um, I, I mentioned it's kind of a lengthy introduction here, but I mentioned that the Center for Competitive Democracy identifies and helps eliminate barriers to political participation by fostering active civic engagement in the political process. So that's kind of a rough outline. I was wondering if you could just uh, spend a few moments to color this in for us a bit, just for a listening audience.
1: Sure. Uh, in practice, uh, it's a very broad mission statement and intentionally so. Um, you know, the uh, the organization was founded with the idea that uh, democracy works when people participate and um, recognizing that there are many aspects of our political process and electoral process that don't foster active participation and uh, in many cases um, discourage it. Um, so, so we wanted to have a broad mission statement and under that umbrella, we, we have done Um, a variety of of work in in different areas, but what we are focusing on um, usually is litigation over the constitutionality of uh, ballot access laws, state ballot access laws that determine whether candidates are permitted to run for office. And uh, we focus on that because uh, each state law is different, But in general, they grant automatic ballot access to the nominees of the Republican and Democratic parties Mm -hmm. at taxpayer expense by means of primary elections that the state pays for. Mm -hmm. Um, While at the same time, these same laws uh, impose a different set of procedures on anyone else who wants to participate. And generally what they require is that a candidate seeking ballot access Um, as an independent or as a party other than the Republican or Democratic Party has to circulate nomination petitions um, to get signatures from voters um, to Mm -hmm. demonstrate that they have a sufficient modicum of support is the term that the courts use uh, to to justify placing them on the ballot. And um, as it turns out, many of these state laws are severely restrictive and um, in many cases prevent... Qualified candidates from running for office and for from giving voters, uh, you know, a meaningful choice when they mm-hmm. go to the polls. Uh, I don't think it's any secret that our elections are not competitive in many cases. Uh, in many cases, the incumbent runs unopposed, or um, I think in the majority of 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 races for the U.S. House. Um, they're not competitive at all. One candidate is virtually guaranteed to win in a landslide,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that sort of maps onto the the electoral college, where uh, that that institution has uh, divided up the country into so-called safe red and blue states, so that ele- uh, presidential elections are decided um, based on the outcome in a handful, ten or twelve. Um, so-called battleground states. Mm-hmm. And so all of this has the effect of marginalizing voters, gerrymandering, I should also mention, um, which which uh, makes legislative districts um, anti-competitive and effectively guarantees that one candidate or the other will win because the legislatures uh, draw the electoral districts um, to choose their own voters, which is the exact inverse of how a democratic election is supposed to take place. And so all of this has the effect of marginalizing voters and um, either denying them any kind of meaningful choice on election day or discouraging them from participating in the first place uh, because the outcome of the election is is a foregone conclusion. Um, So so, uh, 15 years ago when I founded the center, um, we started focusing on ballot access litigation to try to invalidate some of these state ballot access laws um, that that restrict voter choice. And um, that's really the goal is to make the electoral process work for voters again, um, because in many cases it's demonstrably failing them. An election where the candidate, one candidate or the other is um, virtually guaranteed to win is I think by definition, a, a systemic failure of the electoral process. And so we're trying to attack that problem and improve the electoral process by empowering voters, giving them more choices, and um, thereby strengthening American democracy.
0: It's interesting. You talked about uh, that you use the word or the the phrase modicum of support in reference to people getting ballot access, I think you're, you're referencing a judge wants to or people want to make sure that there's a modicum of support. Wouldn't you be hesitant if there were no barriers to access uh, the ballot access that everybody would run? Or would there be like an overwhelming number of people running?
1: Well, <laughs> um, it's a fair question. And the answer is, of course, we should have reasonable uh, standards for regulating ballot access. Um, we don't want, uh, um, you know, laundry list ballots, as as they are sometimes called, mm-hmm. with so many candidates that it becomes unwieldy, either for purposes of of administering the election, or um, for purposes of giving voters again a meaningful choice. So you don't want to have potentially hundreds of candidates on the ballot, for example, Uh, but that's really not the case um, in in the American electoral process. As I previously mentioned, um, uh, the the electoral process is overwhelmingly characterized by uncompetitive electoral districts and uncompetitive races that don't give voters meaningful choices. So um, the question then becomes what is a reasonable uh, standard for granting ballot access and what are reasonable procedures um, that should be in place to enable people to demonstrate the requisite support. And, and that's that's the question that we raise in litigation and it's very often the case that these laws are far more restrictive than necessary to protect the state's interest in maintaining an orderly ballot or any of the other uh, state interests that are asserted to defend these laws. So. Um, there is quite a lot of room for improvement uh, when it comes to regulating the ballot. In other words, uh, by making it uh, essentially easier for qualified candidates to appear on the ballot um, without endangering uh, any of the any of the kind of the the, the the state interests that, that are yeah. raised.
0: Yeah. reason why I brought that up because I, I found something interesting in a, in a website called rangevoting.org. And uh, the question was asked, you know, would any, would anything horrible happen if we just let anybody on any ballot just by asking? And the answer was pretty interesting. It said, uh, basically, Arkansas had that policy up until 1997, and it was changed, I suspect, in 97, because just prior to that year in 1996, they had 13 people on the ballot running for president, which kind of surprised me that you didn't get more people, right? But uh, but. It seems to me like uh, even if everything is free and open and anybody can get on the ballot, it's not necessarily a huge, uh, as big a problem as I previously thought. Yeah, and just to give you one example, too, that they also have on their website, they said Georgia, in the state of Georgia in 1943, um, required a petition. They started in 1943, everything was open. And then in 1943, they required any new party and independent candidates to submit a petition signed by 5% of the number of registered voters in order to get on the ballot for any office. And so the result of all that is since 1943, there have been exactly zero third party candidates that ever managed to get on the ballot for, uh, for a Georgia US House of Representatives seat. Uh, and that's like that's 800 races in total. So uh, what you're doing is extremely important, I believe. And it's, it's very good to, uh, to see that you're fighting the good fight there.
1: Thank you. And I would just note that there is a case pending um, challenging that very requirement in Georgia um, and relying in uh, in part on the extensive historical record that nobody's ever been able to comply with this requirement. Um, And just to give you an example of how hard it is to to win these cases and how reluctant courts are to intervene um, on behalf of what may be viewed as dissident Um, plaintiffs, political dissidents, um, the district court in that case upheld the requirement even though nobody's ever complied with it and said, well, look, uh, the Supreme Court has upheld um, a similar requirement in a previous case some 40 years ago and therefore um, I have to uphold this requirement as well. Um, Fortunately, the court of appeals has reversed and the plaintiffs in that case now have the opportunity to go back and have their claims heard on the merits. In other words, essentially um, to compel the district court to address the fact that, uh, this total exclusion of anyone but Republicans and Democrats since 1943, uh, is strong evidence that these, uh, requirements are unconstitutionally burdensome.
0: Okay, good. Well, It's good to know that you're on that particular case. I just brought that up as sorry, an example and you're already on it. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt.
1: And it's not my case. Um, but, um, it's done by an attorney named Brian Sells, who's doing very good work in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Oh, wonderful. So um, what was your personal motivation behind starting the Center for Competitive Democracy? Because uh, according to what I read, you started this, uh, this Center for Competitive Democracy in 2005, uh, I guess, shortly after you graduated with uh, from Boston University. And um, what pushed you personally to say, you know, enough is enough? I, you know...
1: Right, Um, well, it's, (laughs) I was in law school and it was 2004. And I was reading press coverage of the efforts by the democratic party to uh, force Ralph Nader off state ballots um, nationwide virtually, Mm -hmm. but they they ended up filing something like 19 lawsuits, 29 different complaints uh, in about um, 18 different states, and then they filed several complaints with the Federal Election Commission. And of course, the Democrats were still angry about uh, what they perceived to be uh, Nader's role in the 2000 presidential election, where they thought that uh, that he was somehow responsible for um, Gore's loss. Yeah. And uh, in 2004, they just sued him repeatedly uh, under these state ballot access laws um they filed lawsuits i think virtually anywhere they could to challenge uh his ability to qualify for the ballot under various state laws and i was reading about it and i i guess i didn't know anything about it at the time because i just i was sort of dumbfounded that any citizen has the right to uh to to bring a lawsuit like that with the express intention of denying other citizens the right to to vote for a candidate who may not be a Democrat or a Republican, mm-hmm. and so I started researching it, and that's uh, what what became that article that you cited in the Seattle University Law Review, mm-hmm. um, uh, in which I just discovered that that these states had enacted these laws nationwide, and some of them are uh, rather reasonable, but others are are next to impossible to comply with, and again. In many states, they authorize private citizens to bring lawsuits um, to to try to force a candidate off the ballot. Mm-hmm. And that just struck me somehow as well, anti-democratic, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if the if the intent. The express intent, as it was uh, for the Democrats, was to deny voters uh, the choice of voting for someone who is not their the, the Democrats preferred candidate, the Democratic nominee. No. Um, so uh the more I read about it, the more I thought there was something deeply wrong here, um, uh, particularly w- when you looked at the media coverage of these issues um, then and and now, uh, all this talk of spoilers and uh mm-hmm. you know uh, some independent or third party candidate announces uh, their intention to run for office, and the media takes virtually no interest in why somebody would want to do that, what their actual ideas are, what their political platform is. Uh, They're interested only in uh, what's the uh, potential impact of this candidate's entrance into the race, and will it help the Republican or help the Democrat. Um, And that just strikes me again as a fundamentally wrong way to think about Democratic politics. I mean, small d, Democratic politics. Mm And so I started doing research into these state ballot access laws and try to uh, determine uh, how they came to be and, um, you know, what what potential means there would be for challenging them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very interesting uh, until roughly the turn of the century, the 20th century, um, there were no state ballot access laws. And that's because voters were entitled or allowed to just simply create their own ballots. Yeah, They got their own piece of paper, wrote down the candidate of their choosing and dropped it in the ballot box. And the state's only role was to count the votes and declare the winner. Mm -hmm. And that enabled any American citizen to vote for literally whomever they wanted uh, for any office. Mm -hmm. And that was the case for um, again, up until about the turn of the 20th century. But w- what happened was when voters had the opportunity to just create their own ballots and write down their own choices, um, there was a problem with harassment of voters. People were bribed,
0: intimidated,
1: right. threatened on their ways to, on their way to the polls. It was really a widespread problem. Yeah. And so uh, there was this innovation called the Australian ballot, named so because it originated in Australia, And the idea was that the state would pre-print an official ballot with every candidate running for office on that one ballot and voters would be enabled to go into a private uh, voting booth and make their selections in private. And that would get rid of the opportunity to harass or bribe or threaten them because nobody would have any idea um, who a voter voted for.
0: Well, plus and they, they wouldn't really be worked. carrying the ballots with them too. The, the ballots are given to them at the polling place. I would assume them too, right?
1: That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and this really worked. Um, the problem with uh, bribing and threatening and harassing voters on their ways to the on their way to the polls just sort of evaporated. Um, but what happened is a few decades later, uh, there was this concern about communist infiltration. And uh, so states began to start imposing more restrictive requirements for appearing on the official ballot. Mm-hmm. And that has um, increased in many states uh, to the point where some of these state laws, like the Georgia one you mentioned, are are for all practical purposes impossible to comply with. Uh, so what happened, What what started as a reform or an innovation to protect voters' right to make a free choice of candidates has become the very opposite. It's the very thing that now restricts their ability to vote for the candidate of their own free choosing. And um, again, that's where our litigation comes in.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the states, they, uh, yeah, I think you say they started off with a good intention but then somebody had to make the decision as to what names go on the ballot, and immediately that got politicized and, and just uh, taken over by the two major parties out there. So
1: That's right. And in the case law, it's an interesting point, because in the case law, um, when we challenge these statutes, the court has to look at the nature and the extent and the severity of the burden imposed on the plaintiff's constitutional rights. And then the way they analyze it is by identifying the supposed state interests uh, asserted to justify the challenged statute. And then they do this balancing analysis where they try to determine whether the burdens imposed on the plaintiff's constitutional rights is justified by the need to protect the asserted state interests. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's no secret that the state legislatures are populated almost exclusively nationwide by Republicans and Democrats. So when the court refers to the state in this context, it's, of course, a legal fiction in the first place. But what they are actually referring to is a legislative body comprised entirely or almost entirely of Republicans and Democrats. And yet thus far, when we litigate these cases, we have not uh, had any success in 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 getting courts to recognize uh, this potential conflict of interest, which is that two private political parties control um, the state legislatures,
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: clearly have uh, an interest in enacting laws that will exclude their competitors um, that is totally separate and not justified by the state interests that are asserted to to justify these requirements. So um, that's something that we are working on. And, and we hope that someday um, courts will take more uh, cognizance of the fact that, uh, you know, there may be a conflict of interest in this yeah. area. And for example, in any other area, in any, any other industry, you would never allow the two uh, major corporations um, that that are that predominate over the marketplace to enact rules and regulations uh, to prevent their competitors from entering the market but that's exactly what we have here in the political yeah. uh, marketplace
0: well you talk about the the structure uh, I mean the uh, the approach you're taking is to um, basically use the judicial judicial branch. Uh, to wrestle back, you know, a representative government from the other two branches of government. And you mentioned the legislative branch, also the executive branch. I mean, these are dominated basically by politicians from, as you say, either party, right, the Democrats or Republicans. And they are going to spend, they have spent lots of decades, as you've outlined, uh, fortifying their position. Um, What's kind of concerning me now, though, is... uh, we are seeing a large number of judicial appointments uh, and Senate confirmations that are being made by the Trump administration, and a recent count I've encountered was 197 of them. So basically what I'm saying here is there's three main branches of the government. Don't you see this uh, large number of judicial appointments possibly encroaching now on the judicial branch? So that, you know, basically your your attempt to... uh, to wage this struggle uh, using the judicial branch would be um, perhaps less effective avenue in the future.
1: Well, to begin with, there are only three branches of government, as you point out. So um, we have to we have to work within one or more of those branches. Um, I would be all for it if if state legislatures or Congress or both um, would willingly enact more reasonable ballot access. Um, requirements. For example, Congress could enact a federal ballot access statute um, governing ballot access for all federal offices that would preempt the state laws that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. And and there have been bills introduced in the past to do just that. Uh, Ron Paul, Representative Ron Paul introduced one, um, Representative John Conyers introduced one, I don't believe one is currently pending, but certainly uh, we ought to be waging the fight on, on that mm-hmm. front as well. And, and, and we should be working to get uh, new legislation enacted. And, um, we also do try to promote, um, more reasonable state ballot access laws through the legislative process, um, in conjunction with some of the cases we bring,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or at least at the same time, um, but the fact is the judiciary is the branch of government that, uh, says what the law is in, in the famous words of justice story. And so, um, it's for the judiciary to determine whether these laws are constitutional or not. Um, the federal judiciary at least is appointed, um, certainly by, by, uh, partisan
0: mm-hmm.
1: elected officials, but once appointed, they have lifetime tenure and, uh, Uh, hopefully uh, a a level of independence that will um, keep them above political considerations. Um, That said, these are hard cases to win. um, And we often find that, um, at least in our view, um, the courts don't necessarily take as seriously um, the kind of evidence that we present and the kind of claims that we're asserting. Um, There seems to be in many cases a presumption that the united states was always a so-called two-party system Mm -hmm. and that the courts are somehow there to protect the two-party system Um, but the fact is uh, a two-party system has never meant one in which two parties have the power to exclude their competitors it uh, historically only meant a system in which two parties predominate um, because of various sort of structural features of the American electoral system Um, but it wasn't one that excluded other competitors and so certainly a hundred years ago in the 19th century um, there was a a whole bunch of of minor political parties that were very influential Um, you know the abolitionists the the, uh, free soil party the progressives uh, all of these parties introduced ideas that were sort of verboten at the time, but which eventually became adopted by uh, the two major parties. And, you know, that includes uh, the minimum wage, social security, um, abolition of slavery, women's right to vote. Um, These all came from minor parties uh, who championed these ideas at a time when the two major parties wouldn't touch them. And more recently, to go back to my example of, of Ralph Nader, um, you know, in 2004, it was his campaign that was actively opposing the war in Iraq, and it was the Democrats and the Republicans who were supporting the war in Iraq. Yeah. And now uh, Nader looks somewhat prescient, I think, in, mm-hmm. in the view of many, including many who supported the war at the time. And similarly, uh, his campaign uh, was supporting single payer health care long before uh, anyone else did. As a matter of fact, it was the Democrats, not the Republicans, who prohibited or or prevented um, testimony on single payer uh, in in the hearings um, during the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. uh, legislative process. So. Uh, minor party candidates and independent candidates serve a very healthy role, in, even in a two-party system, even in our two-party system. That was true historically. It's true now, and uh, they deserve to be protected when they attempt to, to participate.
0: Good. Well, I also think that um, it's not just the fact—we uh, have a two-party system here, and I think that the nature of our voting system um, sort of Promotes that in a sense of this this plurality voting or or first past the goalposts type type of voting, it's it's a binary choice, right? You only have one or the other. Versus, you know, there's a lot of people now pushing for ranked choice voting, um, multi representative districts, and things like that, which tend to dilute the um, the power of having just a duopoly and having having it a multi party system. So. Um, there's a lot of things. I think, yeah. There's there's the fight on the judicial branch that that, uh, that you're focusing on, but um, there's a lot of other fights out there. We shouldn't call them fights, but they're just struggles basically to change this the underlying system that supports this duopoly. So
1: right, and 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 that's a good point because uh, we hear so much talk about spoilers uh, whenever mm-hmm. somebody who's not a Republican or a Democrat announces that they're going to run for office, uh, especially if they announce that they're going to run for president. And um, look, when you call somebody a spoiler, what you're saying is if you exercise your fundamental First Amendment rights to speak, petition, associate uh, by running for office, um, you are somehow um, going to ruin the outcome of an election. Right. And that is a problem that we should never think that merely by participating in the process, somebody can somehow uh, ruin the outcome. And to the extent that anyone subscribes to that view, some of the uh, reforms that you mention are sitting there on the shelf, ready and waiting to be implemented. And uh, Ranked Choice Voting, as you know, has been implemented in, in several jurisdictions, and, and Maine um, just adopted it for at least some of their elections, um, in, in recent years. So there are ways to uh, address uh, the complaints that people may have about um, uh, what I what I call dissident candidates. I mean, not everybody is a Republican or a Democrat. In fact, uh, I think that, I don't know if it's a, a plurality of, of the population, but certainly a very large percentage of Americans do not identify as either Republican or Democrat. Right. And the idea that these two parties uh, should should attempt to exclude anyone else from participating or vilify them when they do. When we have these other uh, solutions ready and waiting to be implemented um, that that don't uh, don't entail mm-hmm. that consequence, I, I, I find it I, I no. find it disturbing that that Democrats, for example, um, would would continue to blame. Ralph Nader for the outcome of the 2004, sorry, the 2000 election or or other candidates for that matter. But they never attempt to um, champion reform of the Electoral College, um, which is regardless of what you think of Nader's campaign and candidacy, uh, just certainly a far more consequential factor uh, when it comes to the outcome of the 2000 sure. presidential election, not to mention the Supreme Court's decision in Bush v. Gore, um, the actions of Catherine Harris, who was the Secretary mm-hmm. of State of Florida and purged the voter rolls of um, thousands of qualified voters, at the same time she was serving as Bush's campaign manager. I mean, yeah. just think about that conflict of interest yeah. and the appearance uh, of of action by a state official to benefit a candidate who she was working for. Yeah. Um, you know, we should be working on those things, not not vilifying. American citizens for attempting to participate in the process.
0: Yeah, I was just going to mention that, you know, because I always thought, you know, looking back on the, the election, on, on Ralph Nader's struggles, um, I always thought that the, the, the argument for a spoiler alert and other related arguments uh, in, in regards to what happened in Florida was, um, you know, pardon my cynicism, but I think it was actually a manufactured smokescreen because there was a lot of uh, massive voter disenfranchisement there. And there was a lot of underhanded things taking place that uh, if you look at the number of votes that uh, Ralph Nader pulled in, it, it just, it pales in comparison to the other shenanigans that were taking place at that time. So um, it just made a convenient smokescreen to say, hey, you know, Ralph Nader came in and ruined the day for us.
1: That's right. And another point on that, and there are other factors, for example, um, 250,000 registered Democrats voted for Bush in Florida, um, um, among them. Um, but Also, what people are doing when they invoke this concept of a spoiler is purporting to engage in a kind of retroactive clairvoyance. I I actually got that phrase from (laughs) Ralph uh, Nader himself, Um, by which they think that they can look back in the past and freeze history and change one factor, that is whether Mm -hmm. Nader was running in the the race or not, and uh, remove it from the equation and leave everything else the same. So yeah. they think that, well, look, it's it's obvious. If Ralph didn't run, he got ninety-seven thousand votes in Florida. That was uh, far more than the margin of five hundred thirty-seven votes difference between Bush and Gore. You got to assume that those votes would have gone to Gore and not to Bush. And therefore, if Ralph hadn't run,
0: yeah.
1: uh, Gore would have Probably won. won. Right. But but look at what they're doing. Uh, I mean, it's not as though history or or real life is is a stagnant um stagnant equation or Mm -hmm. a stagnant situation like that if you take ralph out of the equation then um you have to account for the other uh ways in which history would have changed sure so for example everybody remembers that al gore was not the favorite of 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 liberals Mm -hmm. um people thought that he was uh too moderate and they were not excited to vote for him Mm -hmm. and yet um, the polling indicates, and I think common sense indicates, that when uh, Nader was out there running on a real progressive platform, uh, he, he, he had quite a lot more support somewhere, I think upwards of um, you know, eight or nine percent uh, in some polls um, shortly before the election. Um, but when when he actually after the election he only got about 2.7 percent of the vote or 2.4 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So where did all those uh, voters who supported the Nader campaign go? Mm-hmm. Most likely one imagines they held their nose and voted for Gore. So does anybody ever take uh, account of the extent to which Nader's candidacy helped Gore's helped gore's candidacy in 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 that kind of way sure Um, it's a fluid dynamic if you take one candidate out of the race you can't freeze history and just give those candidates votes to another candidate and assume that that's how it would have played out
0: well it makes for a convenient thought experiment that justifies what you're what you're already predisposed to to feeling in the first place so i mean people will just make up uh, all kinds of stories and scenarios in order to uh uh, justify whatever they want. So, that's a that's a classic example there. Um, right. So, I guess in, you uh, you mentioned Ralph Nader's uh, uh, presidential run right there, and it, it brought to mind uh, Teresa Amato, who I believe is on your board of directors, and um, yeah, we've had her on the uh, on the podcast. I believe it was last March uh, timeframe. Um, and she wrote this book called Grand Illusion, and, and quite frankly, that, that book sort of scared me because it made me question whether we actually live in a legitimate democracy. And the more I look into this, the, the less I you know, feel that way, or less I feel that we do live in a legitimate democracy. And uh, you're, the fight in front of you is, is pretty onerous. You know, the powers that the duopoly have accumulated over the election process is extensive, and, and if not absolute at this point, Um, Given that you're fighting the good fight, but don't you feel a bit like David versus Goliath?
1: Well, it is it is a big, big challenge, no doubt about it. Um, And I suppose there is an aspect to it that is David versus Goliath, Um, if only with respect to the financial resources that um, uh, Mm -hmm. our clients um, typically have compared with um, their political opponents. Uh, But again. Uh, I, I'm not prepared to say that we don't live in a real democracy or somehow a, a legitimate um, mm. constitutional republic. Um, we do still have the Constitution. Um, the First Amendment still matters. The 14th Amendment, equal protection, still applies, and um, we do win cases. Um, so it's, it's not a lost cause, mm. and um, there is progress being made, uh, quite a bit of progress. Um, you know many of these laws do get invalidated uh i think in my experience it it typically requires a showing that virtually no one has ever been able to comply with them um or that they are otherwise um, you know so severely burdensome that they can't possibly be consistent with our first amendment right to speak freely petition associate and with equal protection, but, but we do win cases and um, real change um, occurs after that. The legislature is required under the constitution to go back and enact a law that is not unconstitutional. And if the legislature fails to do so, the court has the power to set reasonable ballot access requirements um, that will apply unless and until the legislature takes remedial action and that that has happened in a number of cases that I personally have litigated, and certainly that many other people have litigated uh, in recent decades.
0: Sure. Well, it's uh it's the struggle continues, right? Over time, and you're one of the yeah. I, I, I applaud you and people like you that um, you know that have this hope for the future and that realize that freedom is not free. It's a continuous struggle. So.
1: I I agree, and it's. I think we should think of our democracy not as a static system, but one that we constantly have to uh, reinforce and strengthen and invigorate through participation. And that means voters need to participate. Um, It would be uh, beneficial, I think, if more Americans uh, sought to run for office, whether within the two parties or without. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, within the two major parties, um, there's often a lack of competition there as well. And so what we need is more participation. We need more active engagement. And that includes litigation as well, um, and probably always will. But Mm -hmm. that is the mechanism by which we enforce the rights that are guaranteed to us under the first and 14th amendments and the rest of the bill of rights.
0: Wonderful. So you talked about, um, um, we're coming up in the end of our time right here, but I'd like you to just give us, um, uh, maybe a, a sample of one, one of your success stories, your recent success stories that, um, uh, that, you know, show us that, you know, freedom is attainable if you are willing to put yourself out there and, and, and join the struggle.
1: Sure, I can give you a couple examples. Uh, we recently litigated a case in, in Michigan on behalf of Christopher Gravelin, who was an independent candidate for attorney general, uh, or sought to be, in 2018. And um, he was required to obtain 30,000 signatures uh, on nomination petitions, which means, because you have to do it using paper nomination petitions, more like 40 or 45,000 just to survive the inv- inv- invalidity rate. Um, and nobody had ever complied with that. Uh, no s- statewide candidate had ever complied with that requirement uh, since it had been enacted in 1988. Mm-hmm. And before 1988, Michigan simply did not allow independent candidates to run for office. And so there were several mm-hmm. cases prior to 1988, where federal courts said, Michigan, you've got to allow somebody to run as an independent. And if you don't, we're just gonna put them on the ballot. And I think there were three different court decisions doing that um, until the, the legislature finally acted in 1988 and then adopted this statutory scheme that nobody could comply with. And, and so in our case, um, We won a preliminary injunction. Mr. Gravelin um, uh, appeared on the ballot as an independent candidate for attorney general. Um, And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals um, declined to stay. You know, the state asked the Court of Appeals to uh, Mm -hmm. stay the district court's preliminary injunction and the Sixth Circuit declined to do so. Mm -hmm. So that was a a great outcome. And um, the district court on remand um, established a, a requirement of 12,000 signatures um, unless and until the Michigan legislature enacts remedial legislation. And um, that requirement is still in place. The magis- Michigan legislature has not acted, and they are now appealing the permanent injunction that we won. But mm. uh, unless and until the Sixth Circuit um, invalidates that injunction, that, that's, that's a good outcome. Yeah. Um, if you have time, I'll tell you uh, uh, another case, sure. which is maybe yeah. a little more involved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the, the first case I ever um, started litigating was uh, originated in Pennsylvania. And what happened in Pennsylvania was they had a signature requirement that was 2% of the previous vote for governor, mm-hmm. um, which varied depending on the turnout in the previous election. Sometimes it was as few as uh, 15,000 or so signatures. Uh, Other times, it was all the way up to almost 70,000 signatures. Um, But following Nader's um, uh, candidacy in 2000, um, he was removed from the ballot in Pennsylvania in that year. And then the state court ordered him to pay the private parties who challenged his nomination petitions Mm. more than $80,000 in litigation costs. Wow. This Sorry. was not previously ever done in Pennsylvania or any other state, and it's pretty clear that the um, statute under which it was done uh, was being misinterpreted. The statute was never intended to authorize costs to be imposed against a candidate uh, who defends the validity of his or her nomination sure. traditions, but that's what the court did for the first time following the 2004 election. And then in 2006, they did it again to a Green Party candidate, Carl Romanelli, for U.S. Senate. Uh, He he submitted something like 99,000 signatures to satisfy a 70,000 signature requirement. Mm -hmm. Signatures were invalidated by the tens of thousands. And by the way, when they invalidate signatures, it's very often not because the court has determined or the elections officials have determined that uh, the signers were not qualified voters who were eligible to sign the petition, but really based on technicalities. For example, a guy named William signs as Bill because that's what he goes by, or somebody lives on Pine Street and they move to Oak Street, so their current address doesn't match their registered address. Mm-hmm. You can have tens of thousands of signatures invalidated on these kinds of technical grounds, and the candidate has no way of knowing that that's going to happen. And in good faith, defends his nomination petitions, as Romanelli did. Uh, Nevertheless, gets removed from the ballot. And once again, in Pennsylvania, Romanelli got stuck with uh, a judgment uh, ordering him to pay more than $80,000 in litigation costs. Now, this is a a career civil servant who was retired at the time. This is a bankrupting... um, Level judgment against him. Right. And yeah, it's the everybody. result of these two judgments against Nader and Romanelli was that for the next 10 years or so, candidates were simply afraid to run for office or unwilling to run for office outside the two parties because they couldn't risk uh, house and home uh, and their financial stability. In order to do so. And the result of that was that for a a period of about 10 years in Pennsylvania, uh, voters had no choice but to vote for a Republican or a Democrat for statewide office. Um, We filed a lawsuit to challenge the constitutionality of this challenge uh, scheme. And the district court initially said, we don't have standing, the the plaintiffs don't have standing, um, which in plain English, Um, meant that the district court simply thought that the plaintiffs were uh, not brave enough to run for office and that if they were not brave enough um, that wasn't an an unconstitutional violation that was simply their own personal preferences and there there was no burden on their constitutional Mm, rights. mm. Luckily on appeal the third circuit court of appeals reversed the district court and uh, issued a very strong ruling recognizing the evidence we had presented that Uh, What was happening in under this statutory scheme is that Republicans and Democrats were explicitly using the judgments against Nader and Romanelli as as the Third Circuit called it a cudgel um, to To to, um, discourage and and to intimidate anybody from challenging them in the electoral process. Um, And the Third Circuit also recognized that this had created a chilling effect on protected First Amendment activity.
0: Yeah. So,
1: with that judgment, uh, the case was remanded back to the District Court, and the District Court then ruled in our favor on summary judgment and adopted the same language that the Third Circuit had used, recognizing this statutory scheme creates a chilling effect, and um, ultimately what the District Court did was enjoin enforcement of Pennsylvania's signature requirement um, uh, unless and until the legislature enacts a a new requirement and the legislature still hasn't acted. Um, and so the signature requirement that the district court put in place, which is 5,000 signatures for statewide office, mm-hmm. um, is still in effect. And the court settled on that figure, by the way, because we presented evidence um, from our expert witness, who is a man named Richard Wehner. He's the editor of mm-hmm. Ballot Access News. Sure. And he knows more about this stuff than anybody in, in, the, in the world, really. Uh, and he has done the historical research to demonstrate that any state that has had a signature requirement of 5,000 signatures or greater has never had more than eight candidates on the ballot for statewide office. Wow. So, yeah. um, with that kind of evidence, you can prove that the kinds of requirements that we're challenging are just. Um, you know, by many orders of magnitude, far more restrictive than they need to be to protect the state's interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anyway, that's that. That's a pretty big success story. It was the first case that I litigated. It took about all told about eight or ten years because there were three separate appeals. But the Third Circuit ruled in our favor each time, and and we got a very good outcome in the end.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me because you know you, you your First Amendment rights of petition. Uh, nobody tells you that. Yeah, you may get sued for eighty thousand dollars for exercising that right. By the way, um, yeah. and somebody could challenge you, and then you end up paying. I mean, to me, it's like some bully just punching in the side of the head, and then later on suing you because you broke his brass knuckles with your skull or something. You know, so it's
1: it's <laughs> a good analogy. And <laughs> if I could just fill in a little bit of the background here, because there's another important aspect of the story. While we were litigating that case, um, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania handed down an indictment um, involving political corruption and misuse of public funds um, in Harrisburg, the state capital of of Pennsylvania, um, in which it was revealed that there was just a massive effort, mainly by the House Democratic Caucus in Pennsylvania to misappropriate taxpayer resources. And one of the two main examples cited in the indictment that the Attorney General handed down were the challenges prepared uh, against the Nader and Romanelli petitions. Um, what, What the grand jury in that case found and what was subsequently proved at trial was that House Democrats, Uh, were um, having state employees, members of the House Democratic Caucus Mm -hmm. work overtime and work during the normal day around the clock to prepare these petition challenges at taxpayer expense. Uh, And so then these same parties, well, they they found law firms to file the challenges and they found nominal plaintiffs to file the challenges so that the illegality um, was not discovered at the time. But then these parties had the the nerve, having filed a challenge to these candidates' petitions, illegally prepared Mm -hmm. at taxpayer expense, uh, they had the nerve to then attempt to uh, enforce and obtain and then enforce these um, judgments for $80,000 in costs, claiming that justice required, the court to order the candidates to pay them the cost of their litigation. Wow. So it it shows you the level of corruption that sometimes uh is involved in these cases and the extent to which uh the incumbent parties sometimes go mm-hmm. uh to to protect their own personal political interests.
0: Yeah, at at taxpayer cost or a taxpayer expense. Yeah. Yep. Wow. What That's interesting. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of coming up to the end right here. I'd I'd like to provide an opportunity, though, to uh, tell us a little bit more uh, about how our listeners can what our listeners can do to help the Center for Competitive Democracy in its campaign to make our country a more perfect union.
1: Yes, thanks for the opportunity. First, uh, I I hope it's not crass, but I hope everybody goes to competitivedemocracy.org, visits our website, um, takes a look at the the work we're doing, and um, there is a donate button. So anybody who supports this work, uh, we are always in need of resources to keep it going. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Voter choice is our handle. And um, that's where we post uh, the updates on our court fights and hopefully our our, our wins, um, a couple of which we've recently had uh, in the context of the COVID pandemic. You know, it's amazing. In many states, um, the states are still insisting that candidates and parties get out there and collect signatures by hand yeah, yeah. during a pandemic, notwithstanding their orders that um, everybody should stay at home except for life uh essential activities so mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to be done and and this covid thing has demonstrated that um there are always new challenges that we're facing um and and we're we're continuing this has been probably the most uh, the busiest we've ever been in 15 years since um center for competitive democracy was founded but beyond that i, I hope that voters will take a hard look at what the major parties, the Republicans and Democrats, are telling them uh, in the current election and certainly about past elections. And 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 don't be so quick to um, uh, sign over your vote um, long ahead of time uh, without extracting some political uh, influence in return. Um, voters, if you support uh, policy positions that the incumbent candidates are not addressing or that they oppose, you have the power to influence them by withholding your vote from them. Mm -hmm. And voters in so-called red and blue safe districts or safe states absolutely should take a hard look at doing so. You know, I I live in the District of Columbia. Um, The Democratic nominee for president wins that election in in the district of columbia you know north of 85 percent if not more Mm -hmm. and so uh anybody who wants to see um the sorts of policies that maybe other parties like the green party or the libertarian party or perhaps independent candidates are championing, then you should absolutely take a hard look at supporting them, particularly when you're in a district like the District of Columbia or another safe red or blue state or district, because that's when they start to notice. When you start voting for policies that they don't support or won't address, that's when they will take notice.
0: Good. Well put. Yeah, I was just going to interject there that, um, We've personally had on this show uh, De- Deborah Lavender, who's the uh, who's a state representative here. I, I live in Missouri, our local state representative. Uh, she's from the Democratic Party, but she's very open to uh, right here in the podcast. She said that she's very open to helping third parties um, uh, get more better ballot access. Uh, there's also a guy named Philip Fearer, who is our um, our state um, chair for Minnesota. He also has a lot of relationships with uh, current state representatives and um, senators in in Minneapolis in, um, in Minnesota and he's able to uh, talk to them on a one-on-one basis so I'd also say that you know if if, if you don't uh, if you're be be discriminatory in your votes, of course, but also don't be afraid to approach some of your local representatives. they're They're actually very approachable, I find. So
1: I, I think that's a great point. And you know, not not to demonize um, all Republicans and Democrats, certainly not. Um, there are many who uh, do support uh, greater access and recognize that the Constitution demands it. um again, It was a Democrat, Representative John Conyers, who introduced the ballot access bill in Congress years ago, and Ron Paul, a Republican, did so as well. Uh, Also in Pennsylvania, um, a Republican, Senator Mike Fulmer, uh, introduced a very good ballot access reform bill that really sat languishing in the legislature uh, until we started winning that case and until we got a final judgment. And um, then the legislature uh, took uh, emergency action to try to get it enacted um, but uh, they failed to do so before the session ended and so again the court order remains in place and there is no remedial re- legislation but uh, I absolutely think uh, that that, uh, that uh, speaking with legislatures and, and, and uh, other elected representatives is worth doing because that's the only way they will um, know that voters demand a more responsive and accountable government.
0: Right. Yep. I agree. So the uh, again the the website address uh for a center for the Center for Competitive Democracy is called competitivedemocracy.org all one word no hyphens no underscores competitivedemocracy.org. Okay? Uh, we've been talking with Oliver Hall, founder, executive director and general counsel for the Center for Competitive Democracy. Oliver, I I want to thank you for all the great work you and your staff are doing, and also thank you for stopping by this evening and sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Well, thanks very much, Dan. I enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you, and I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of non-partisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.